The problem with resurrection is that it's so hard to believe in it. We're now, liturgically at least, in the season of the resurrection. Right? The church or churches <laughs> throughout the world and throughout the ages have followed uh, what we call a liturgical calendar. It's a cyclical calendar that goes through seasons that sort of repeat themselves. And we've been talking about this in OIC lately. And in many churches, such as uh, the Church of Norway that has this building and whom we have a partnership with, they will uh, dress up the church in a way in the, in the colors of the, of the season. And white is the season of resurrection. It's the season of Easter. So liturgically, at, at least, we are in the season of resurrection, right? The, the altar is dressed in white. The Bible texts that we are reading are witnessing to the resurrection and to the risen Jesus Christ. And our OIC series, we usually have these thematic series of preachings in OIC, right? And our OIC series is called Land of the Living. Land of the Living. Remembering the messengers from God who met the women who after the crucifixion of Jesus had gone to Jesus' grave, had gone searching for him, seeking to tend to his body and seeking to tend to their own grief. Yet as they arrive at the tomb, at the grave, at the place of death, they were greeted with the question, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? Look for the living among the living. Look for the living Christ in the land of the living. So we have been talking about resurrection. We have been reading about resurrection. We have been seeking to recognize the living Christ in the land of the living. The challenge with resurrection, though, is that it's so hard to believe in it. And we could start grumbling things about how our age and time have become so skeptical about everything, right? We, how secularism has dominated in the public square and sort of robbed us of wonder and faith and made us all into doubters. We, we could blame science and philosophy about the crumbling influence of the church or something like that. We could. We could do all of that, but it would be both unhelpful and I would argue would just be misguided and as far as I can tell, historically and biblically incorrect. What I mean is, just to give an example, in the Gospel of Luke, there is only one verse, one verse, separating the first witness of the resurrection and the first clear expression of doubt over it. That's all. Doubt over the reality of the resurrection is as old as the witness of the resurrection of Christ. Older, we could say, right? One of the main theological disagreements between two of the most influential groups in Judaism at the time of Jesus, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, was precisely over the reality of resurrection. Why is it so hard to believe? It's, after all, not a bad thing to believe in, right? It's not, it's not like not believing in monsters or ghosts or 
werewolves, things that one both doesn't believe in and prefers do not exist, right? We'd rather not that they don't exist. But I guess most people, at least on the surface and without deeper reflection, would consider the idea of resurrection to be an attractive one. Still, it seems hard to believe when it becomes more than an abstract suggestion. So the women run from the grave, meet the disciples, John, Peter, James, Nathanael. Jesus has risen from the dead. And their reaction, nope. Oh, that can't be true. That doesn't sound right. Why is it so hard to believe? I don't have the answer, of course. (laughs) I don't. But I do have a hunch. I do have a what I think is a fairly good guess of at least part of the picture. I think perhaps resurrection is so hard to believe in because the evidence, evidence of death is so overwhelming. I think maybe resurrection is hard to believe in because the evidence of death is so overwhelming. We see death all around us. And even though we spend absurd amounts of energies and resources trying to avoid, trying to stall, trying to hide away or to ignore death, it unavoidably catches up with us. So resurrection feels counterintuitive. Our general experience of the reality of death is that it is unavoidable and that once it arrives, it doesn't go away. So we go away. We go as far away from it as we possibly can. Which I wonder may be another part of why resurrection is difficult. Because resurrection demands that we acknowledge death at close quarters. We cannot... We cannot believe in resurrection unless we accept the reality of death. We cannot even start to to talk about resurrection before we first go to the grave. And that may be more challenging than it seems. I think it is especially challenging when we consider not only what we call death, uh, the main thing, (laughs) but when we think about all the realities of death that we encounter daily, that we engage with daily, and that we are engaged by daily. All the life-diminishing, life-reducing, life-defying realities of, well, of life in the land of the living. All the shades of death, All the realities of death that we much rather move away from than touch or acknowledge. But if resurrection is to be real and to mean anything at all to our life in the land of the living, then it will demand that we acknowledge these life-reducing realities. It means... 
in a way, a call out of the inertia of death and the inertia of death avoidance. And that, for me, is what today's resurrection story is about. I know it is also about other things, and it has been very often interpreted for other things. But for me, the story that I want to read with you today has become not, o- not only a story of Christ's resurrection, but a story of Peter, who is prominent in the story, as we will see, of Peter going beyond being a witness of resurrection and allowing resurrection to actually touch his life and help him touch the life-diminishing, life-threatening, life-reducing realities in himself. I reflected on this particular way of reading the story before, actually back in 2020, and I want to revisit that reflection today. And the story is in the end of the Gospel of John. So this is after Jesus' resurrection. This is, in fact, after the disciples had already witnessed to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read from the NRSV. There might be, let's hope that the translate, we're trying to find the the right match on the translations here. But I'm reading from the NRSV, chapter 21 of the Gospel according to St. John, from verse 15. And this is what the Gospel writer tells us. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. So this is a story about Peter. The Peter. The leader of the apostles, the guy Jesus named Rock. That's what Peter means, Cephas, it means rock. The guy that Jesus said he would build his church on, that Peter. And sure, often when we talk about Peter, we will also talk about his impulsivity, about some of his character flaws, and everything that he had to work on and so on and so forth. But still, we very often frame it as a sort of an overcoming story, right? A before and after kind of story. 
When it comes to this story we just read, this shows up in that this, this story has very often been read with a focus on Peter's role as a leader in the early church. And very often that's what we're talking about. My NIV translation, so the New International Version, if you go there, it even has the subtitle before this story that, has, that says, Jesus reinstates Peter. And that is a language that is aimed very much at the role of Peter as a leader, his function. Now, it's true that Peter was a prominent leader in the early church, and it's true that this text is part of the historical claim to the legitimacy of Peter's leadership, and it may very well have played a role quite early, perhaps even before the writing of the Gospel of John in his uh, authority and his role in the community of believers. But having said that, I still think that might not be the main point of this conversation between Jesus and Peter. And I know that's a, maybe a, a bit of an unorthodox way of reading the text, but I have two reasons for this. The first is that it doesn't seem like Peter was the kind of guy that had trouble taking the role of leader. Peter was quick to speak, quick to position himself, and he was quite at ease with making strong statements about his position. We see that all through the story. We see it just now, right? I'll get to that, right? This, this very story that sets the context of, of this conversation, uh, on this very story, the other disciples are shown to be following Peter's lead already. After, after Jesus' resurrection and a, and a couple of appearances, and we actually talked about the story last week, right? The disciples don't quite know what to do with themselves. And Peter decides he's going fishing, and a whole group of disciples does what? Okay, so we're going with you. And also, the gospel writer who tells us this story, which is, according to tradition, the same John who was also part of this conversation uh, as the disciple whom Jesus loved, keeps on calling him by his given name, Peter, Rock, his leader name, even as Jesus chooses to repeatedly call him Simon, son of John. And I'll get to that particular detail in a minute because it already points to my second reason. So the first reason is Peter, there's no reason to believe that Peter had trouble stepping into the role of leaders or that the other disciples had trouble following him. But the other reason is that the way this conversation is framed in the Gospel of John points not to Peter's strength, not to his curriculum for being a leader, but points rather to his weaknesses. In fact, there's connections and lines in this story to, all, to some of Peter's most shameful moments in the Gospels. The context of this conversation is a fishing trip. So the story starts, as we said, as we saw, with Peter and the disciples going out to fish. And they spend a whole night fishing and they catch nothing. And in the morning, an unrecognized Jesus calls to them from the shore and tells them to cast their nets again. And they do so and the nets come full of fish. And at this they recognize Jesus. And Peter 
we can imagine, has a flashback. At least as the biblical narrative works and these gospels work together, they're used by the early church, there's a flashback to a strikingly similar event that one of the other gospel writers tells about many years before, and that is the first story of Peter's weaknesses. At that time, Peter was probably not yet a disciple. And after using his boat as a pulpit, the story goes, Jesus is preaching to a crowd. A crowd presses on him. He's like, I have to go somewhere. Peter, can I use your boat? Distances from the shore. So after using, using Peter's boat as a pulpit, Jesus asks Peter to cast the nets, and the nets return full. It's the same story. They hadn't catched anything all night, Peter Jesus says, cast the nets, they come full. And realizing that Jesus was no ordinary man, Peter recoiled, and what does he say? Go away from me. Go away from me. I am a sinful man. I cannot have anything to do with you, Jesus. That story is the backdrop to this story. Not exactly Peter's brightest moment. And obviously Jesus didn't go away, right? <laughs> And back to the conversation, we have Jesus purposefully calling Peter Simon, son of John. Repeatedly, Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. And there's a contrast, right? So we know that this is not by accident because the narrator keeps on calling him Simon Peter. But Jesus calls him Simon, son of John. And this is meaningful because it was Jesus himself who had given him the name Peter. And as the gospel writer Matthew tells the story, Jesus gave him the name when Simon, who at this point was already a disciple, declared Jesus to be the Messiah. Who do you say I am? You are the Messiah. And that is a high moment when Peter says the right thing at the right time and goes right on to putting his foot in his mouth. And say, yeah, Jesus, but you know this whole death story you keep on talking about, you're going to die, we don't like that, maybe you should tone it down a bit, maybe don't keep on talking about dying. And Jesus strongly rebukes Peter. Get away from me, Satan. Get away from me, accuser, which is what the word Satan means. Get away from me. Again, Peter's weakness is on display. And finally, there is the very often noted fact that Jesus asks the question three times. Simon, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again a third time, Simon, do you love me? It was hardly a month if we follow the chronology of the story, since Peter had three times denied that he knew Jesus. Even after he had just said he would die for his Lord. But when Jesus is arrested, when Peter is surrounded by an accusing crowd, I don't know this man. 
I don't know this man. I have nothing to do with him. So the question is, why does the gospel writer and Jesus bring all this stuff up? Is Jesus really testing Peter? Checking if he really loves him? Wanting to know if Peter is actually up to the task? I don't think so. I think that would just be a story of avoiding death. Just the story of not going into the grave. I think what is happening here is that Peter, is that Jesus doesn't want Peter to do what we so often do. He doesn't want Peter to pretend that the hurt isn't there. He doesn't want Peter to pretend that this would somehow disappear if he just ignored it strongly enough, if he just performed well enough, if he just put up enough of a leader role, if he just kept it as hidden as possible, that it would just go away. Jesus wants Peter to enter the grave where Peter may tend to his grief. He wants Peter to admit to Jesus and to himself that this is part of Peter's story. And then he wants to tell Peter, you can love me like that. You can love me like that. I love you. I love you like that. We're going to be okay, Peter. We're going to be okay. Take care of my sheep. Jesus wants resurrection to take part in Peter's life. He wants Peter to take part in resurrection. If I imagine myself in Peter's place, this was the elephant in the room, right? The unaddressed pain, the life-reducing reality that is scary to touch. He knew what he had done. What if he did it again? What if Jesus didn't trust him anymore? How could he ever forgive himself? You can see the questions rolling in his head. He had denied Jesus. He had doubted Jesus. Could he trust? Could Jesus trust him after all of that? He wasn't a a rock. He was a broken Simon. Can you imagine Peter's inner dialogue? And Jesus says, Simon. He speaks to Simon. Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Three times. Saying, I know, Simon. I know, you denied me three times. But I'll still be there after each time asking you if you love me and still asking you to follow me. The same question. It didn't change, Peter. Follow me. 
And Jesus doesn't offer Peter a, a magic solution, right? He doesn't snap his fingers and transform Peter into a super leader. He doesn't whisk away the harsh edges of Peter's personality. What he does is Jesus invites Peter to keep on following him and keep on loving him. You'll struggle, you'll struggle Peter, but in the end, it's going to be okay. We're okay. Peter, the denier, will even one day be brave enough to be a martyr for his Lord. But one day, today the call is just to follow. Not to have it all figured out, not to pretend the weakness and the doubts and the fears aren't there, but to follow. Not as a made-up person that pretends has everything together and leads the flock, but as weak Simon who is only called Peter because Jesus showed him grace and who takes care of the sheep because he loves Jesus. If anything, I believe Jesus is calling Peter to be vulnerable as a person and as a leader. So I don't think this is about Jesus getting the leader that he needs for his church. I think this is about Jesus caring for Peter. And it's precisely because it's that that it can be anything of a leader for the church. And I think we would do well to listen and to learn. Peter needs to deal with his hurt and able to love better. This Peter, who is called to be fisher of man and the leader, now is called to get in touch with his brokenness and to feed the sheep, feed the sheep, tend to the sheep. The language of leadership that Jesus calls Peter into, if it is any language at all. It is a language of tenderness. It is a language of care. It is a language of love. And Peter needs to deal with his brokenness in order to love better. He needs to deal with his stuff. He needs to name the life-reducing realities in himself for resurrection to take place. We need to deal with our stuff in order to love better. We need to learn to be vulnerable. We need to learn that we don't have to have it all together to follow Jesus. We need to learn to believe in resurrection in the land of the living. Maybe, maybe it's difficult to believe in resurrection. But then our faith insists on these practices of resurrection. Practices of vulnerability, of repentance, of forgiveness. These are practices of resurrection that shape us to love better.
This is one. There are others. We'll speak of others. But here we have Peter. Daring to go into the grave of his own soul. Daring to acknowledge death. And daring to believe the Christ who loves him. Practices of resurrection, they require faith, yes, but they require vulnerability. They require humbleness. They require the willingness to be recognized in the reality of life. I think we have a lot to learn about making this kind of space in our communities and in our lives. But here, even of the one that Jesus calls a rock, Jesus asks nothing less than vulnerability and expects nothing more than love from brokenness. So yes, it's difficult to believe in resurrection. But it's possible. And it's also possible to live into it. To live into the narrative of resurrection. To engage in the daily work of walking out of graves. What does that look like? What does that look like in our lives? What does that look like in our community? What does it look like to dare to name, dare to get in touch with, dare to not turn our face away? But believe that Christ can meet us there with life. It's hard to believe on the general idea of resurrection, maybe. <laughs> but sometimes I wonder if it's easier to put that as a statement of faith, right? Than to believe in forgiveness than to believe in repentance in practice, than to believe in vulnerability, than to say not only one day, one day, one day, but say today, life, life breaks through. Life is possible. A turn is possible. Today in these small daily practices, Christ meets us. And there's life where there once was death. And maybe these practices will feed our faith and our faith will feed these practices. And we will dare to be people who don't just speak of the resurrected Christ, but seek to find the living Christ in the land of the living who seek resurrection in the small deaths that meet us, that we engage with, that we take part in, or that we try to run away from in our own lives.
For Peter, this was touching his vulnerability, his weakness, his fear, his brokenness. That might very well be what it looks like for some of us. I don't know. But our faith has invited us again and again to say that it's possible. And that we can love better. Let us pray. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you into the days of your sorrow and doubt and the days of your joy that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Serve each other. Serve the world. Serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.